0: with Ashley Frasca
1: plants flowers trees and stuff brought to you by Pike nurseries
0: on 95.5 WSB good Saturday morning you know
2: it's time for a green growing field trip let's leave the studio for a bit Do you struggle with your lawn? As with many things in the landscape, are we just overthinking it? Well, for you, I ventured down to the University of Georgia Griffin campus to join turfgrass expert Clint Waltz on his turf for a change. I want you to hear how some of the research being done south of Atlanta can ultimately help you be more successful making your grass thrive. You've heard him on the show. You know him from Green and Growing. Clint, thanks for having me out here today. My pleasure. A lot of studies being done here at the University of Georgia, one of which we are in the golf cart right now sitting on the side of the road watching a Husqvarna robotic mower kind of do its thing. What is the research being done with robotic mowers and what's the thought process that makes that different from conventional
3: mowing? Well the robotic mowers are just taking off tips. It's much better than the one-third mowing rule where you let it grow up over the course of a week and you take off a significant amount of grass, a third or so of the leaf surface. With this, it's just taking tips. So is it less stress on the plant? And if less stress, do we get greater root volume? Do we get greater root depth? It's acquiring water and nutrients from greater depths, and as a result, you wouldn't need as much water and nutrients to maintain the grass. So by reducing the stresses, we may be able to reduce the amount of inputs that go into maintaining it, and robotic mowing may be one of those things that helps with it. So you can set the program up on the app and uh, let the mower just do its thing. Uh, you can let it go morning, noon, or night. It'll run in uh, rain, it'll run in sunshine. It's never called Department of Labor on me for, for working weekends or holidays. And it's yet to call in with a case of the brown bottle flu. Uh, so it's, it's there and it's the grass always looks perfectly mowed.
2: A steady worker that you can have assist you in your landscape. Up next, helping cool season grasses stay healthy. And hop over to the Green and Growing Facebook page to see a video with tips about the importance of site prep. Clint, we're out here looking at a, a spread of different fescue types, um, and it's interesting what you all are doing down here to help it succeed a little more with these summer temperatures. You still want fescue to thrive the best it can. What are some tips that are being done here on campus that homeowners
3: Well, things that we're doing here, just bringing some of our mowing heights as well as cultural, uh, cultural practices and, and management practices that we talk talked about. So keeping the fertility down, bringing our mowing heights up before the onset of stress, not, not at. <laughs> it has to happen beforehand. People do
2: think quite often of fescue to be a little more shade tolerant than most grasses, but you're right. If it's tucked in the back corner of someone's yard, buildings are shading it, trees are shading it, the air becomes kind of stagnant, which would bring on disease, which would not lead to a healthy turf
3: correct. Uh, most of our diseases are fungal diseases, so they need about 12 hours of, of, of continual wetness. So if they've got that in stagnant areas, they can certainly have 12 plus hours of, of wet canopy. Uh, disease will onset, and when you get the onset of disease, you get decline of the grass and opens up and it gets weedy and just goes downhill from there. Whereas if you put something like a fan or you limb up some trees or things like that to improve your air drainage, we start drying out that canopy, we get fewer disease issues, and the grass will actually do better.
2: The three things that go into the quality of grass, explain those three things, kind of what you're looking at.
3: In turf, we're a quality business. It has to look good, it has to to play, it has to function. Quality is something that we look at, and for us, a a quality turf is going to be one that has a genetic dark green color, typically. Some folks prefer lighter, but a genetic consistent color, mostly green, dark green. Canopy density, and many folks prefer a fine leaf texture although there are some out there that more of a medium to coarse leaf texture, like a St. Augustine grass. It's just going to have a coarse leaf texture, but those are the things that that we look at. Leaf texture, canopy density, and genetic green color.
2: And we went through the greenhouses as well. So what were we looking at in the greenhouse that you took me in that some of the grasses that you have that have been sent here from different universities, and y'all are all working kind of under the same grant.
3: Right. We have this large federal grant. It's a five, six-year grant. I forget now. Uh, We've actually been working on a variation of that one for longer, but the, the thrust on that or the emphasis of that particular grant, is identifying grasses with better water use efficiency to them. So each one of the scientists at, at various locations have certain responsibilities. And one of the things that I'm doing with it is, is looking at that harvestability. So although a grass may have an improved water use efficiency to it, if it's something the sod producer can't grow and can't produce and make money at, then it's probably something that's not going to ever be commercially available or viable. So part of my work is we'll put it in a field. We'll let it grow in for 14 to 16 months, and then we'll actually harvest it. And we have a machine that pulls it apart, and we can measure tensile strength on it and and harvestability and regrowth and, and that type of thing.
2: So what are some of the qualities you're looking at?
3: Growth rate. Establishment rate would certainly be one of those things. As it is harvested, will it hold together? And then from a production standpoint, you want something that's going to recover and regrow back in as rapidly as possible, too. So if that harvesting cycle can go from twelve months to 10 or 11 months there's some advantages to that economically as well as environmentally. As an agronomist I'm helping our breeders with, with certain aspects of um, cultural and cultivation practices and how the grass will do in the way of harvestability for example. Our pest management folks, our weed scientist, our pathologist, our, our entomologist, what kind of pest issues are possibly with some of the new ones uh, that are gone. We have a physiologist here that works more down at the cellular plant level. Uh, Trying to understand why we do have improved drought hardiness or increased rooting or resistance to particular disease or or what have you. We operate as a team and we all kind of bring our expertises together.
2: I've seen a lot of grass types with you today and I'll be honest before I started the show working with Walter for a number of years I couldn't necessarily look at my neighbor's lawn and identify that's a Bermuda lawn. They have a fescue, I knew. Can you tell us maybe the most common, let's say the top four lawns here in, in North Georgia?
3: The easiest one to look to, for that is, is zoysia grass. It, as a species, has more silica and lignin. As a result, it tends to be more rigid. So a quick simple thing on that one is push your hands on it, and if it feels a little needly and spiny, likely zoisie grass. That's not 100% foolproof. There are some softer zoysia grasses. Bermuda grass certainly isn't as rigid as zoysia grass typically. So it's going to be a little softer. And, and you can see it in some text defined as a soft feel. Trying to discern between, say, centipede grass and St. Augustine grass. Uh,
2: now, I saw some St. Augustine today, and it did. It looked different to me, and it's not really familiar to me.
3: We've got more St. Augustine in the Atlanta market than, than most folks give it credit for. It can have its hard years whenever it freezes really hard in the winter. But the other time you see St. Augustine grass in the Atlanta market really pop out is during drought years. And it's interesting in that you'll see a brown yard, a brown yard, and then a green yard. What's that green yard? And it's St. Augustine grass. You look at all the texts and many of the texts will say that it doesn't do well in drought conditions. Well, that's in Florida where it's a giant sandbox. But you take put St. Augustine grass on some of our clay soils in the state of Georgia and it's actually appears to be fairly efficient at pulling moisture out and retaining green color and and quality under limited water conditions of a drought.
2: And we talked about fescue. We saw a patch of fescue. I forget how many different varieties of fescue you told me I was looking at. But that turned out really lush and really nice. But obviously that's easier to identify because it's a cool season grass.
3: It'll hold a green color year round. And that's an advantage to, to tall fescue i do consider griffin the southern boundary for tall fescue it's just environmentally difficult to do and it does better in the shade environments too in the atlanta area and north it's it's when it gives us a, a true option in their shady environments which most of our landscapes are they've, they've got a combination of trees and ornamentals and building or house shade and that kind of thing so tall fescue offers us some nice advantages site prep is very important for tall it's important for all of our grasses but for tall fescue site preparation is is critical
2: let's talk a little bit about that because i did share a short video of you going over that um, on the green and growing wsb facebook page but you made it sound so easy and i think a lot of homeowners if you cut corners in the beginning you're going to end up paying for it in the long run so site prep number one most important what's involved
3: big thing there is telling take your soil sample get that into your local county office come back and if we need to adjust the pH, adjust the phosphorus, potassium, the fertility within the soil, that's the time to do it. It's much easier to get that incorporated in and truly have it affect the soil chemistry as as during that site prep period. Next thing is, is till it deep. Two inches is better than one, four is better than three. Get it worked up well. It's making a seed bed for that seed and giving the grass an advantage or competitive advantage. It is time consuming, but it will pay off in the long run when you do the proper site preparation.
2: If you take nothing else away from this, site prep. Now bragging rights for Bermuda grasses. Hear how versatile the varieties can be.
3: Way came out in 1960, so that's kind of the industry standard. Beautiful color, fine leaf texture, high canopy density, can mow it low, few pest problems, and many of our Bermuda grasses have tried to supplant it from the marketplace ever since. And as a result, University of Georgia still tried to lead the way on new Bermuda grass cultivars. So through the years, we've had things like Tiff Sport come along that's been um, developed for, for sports field uses, and we had Tiff Grand come along, and it had a little bit of improved shade persistence, and a genetic dark green color that was Excellent. But then our most recent one is Tiff Tough. And
2: I saw that in action today.
3: Yeah, Tiff Tuff. It continues to surprise me the way it will persist under a limited light or some shade. Um, it holds density and, and commercial acceptability very well. But its real claim to fame is its uh, drought persistence. Here we are six weeks in on a not having been irrigated, and it looks fantastic. It's maintaining green color, canopy density, shoot density, and as far as it goes, you'd look at it and why not think you need to irrigate it whatsoever.
2: And this takes some establishment because some of the, the grasses we were looking at on the field had maybe been put in 2017, 2018, so they're established.
3: Yes, that is very good key, and that's that's important actually. You can't put these down <laughs> from sod, and he said it was drought tolerant. Yeah, yeah, you put them down from sod and not water them. No, they, they, they do need to get established first. You'd be surprised how I many folks. Well, you said <laughs> um, that is an excellent point, and, and a, it, that. These grasses do have to get in, they do need to get established. A growing season or two will, will optimize those genetic characteristics that have been built into these grasses and why they were released for the purpose that they were released, which was reduced water use.
2: If it has TIF before it, T-I-F, the Tifton campus, University of Georgia, that's involved.
3: Absolutely, the turf team and the University of Georgia Turf breeding program and, and yes, Tifton campus as well is, are very much known internationally because of our grasses.
2: Coming up in just a few minutes, and final thoughts from Clint Waltz on what it is about this Georgia climate that puts us on the map. You're listening to Green and Growing. The update on your weather brought to you by Finley Roofing. Now back with Clint Waltz. Clint, what do you think makes Georgia prime or somewhat successful in being able to breed different turfs?
3: Hmm? Well, we've got a variety of climates here, so anywhere from Tifton all the way up to Blairsville. So we've got a nice little variety that we can kind of breed around, and and we have research stations across the state. So our breeders can can put some of their grasses at at various places and screen them across the heat of Tifton or the coolness of of the North Georgia mountains and look for some of those kind of extremes in the the grasses that, that survive in both and have all those qualities and characteristics. The University of Georgia and the state legislature and and the industry here in the state of Georgia has all been ones that see the value and the economic impact that turf has on the state. And it's huge, it's a multi-billion dollar a year economic engine in the state is what turfgrass is. So they've supported University of Georgia and two breeding programs and as a result I think we've we've done a real good job on the return on investment and bringing back federal grants as well as putting products out there that really benefit uh, the end user and whether it's the homeowner, the commercial landscaper, or the turf grass practitioner, sports field manager, or golf course superintendent.
2: Clint and his team work with different universities. Y'all are all coming together to do really good work, especially with your grant program. You said there's five universities
3: involved. It's a joint grant between Texas A&M University, Oklahoma State University, University of Florida, University of Georgia, and NC State University. It's a good group of folks to work with. We've also had some really good finds that come out of some scientific uh, things that have stimulated us all, but then some products that have come out of it as well, with some grasses. For example, Tiff Tuff has come out of that from University of Georgia. Tahoma 31 has come out of the Oklahoma State breeding program. Tamstar is a St. Augustine grass cultivar that has come out of uh, Texas A&M. The whole thrust behind that has been improved water use efficiency in our turf grasses.
2: Taking me through the greenhouses, you mentioned statistics. I asked, why so many of the same plant? Three R's of statistics and why those are important in the everyday work that you do.
3: Statistics will wind up being allows us to say that this is different than that. With some degree of certainty or assurance, randomize, replicate, and repeat. We randomize within our trials to take out any kind of uh, local variability. So this spot here in the greenhouse may be more sunny than that spot. We want to randomize it within. With on it, we're going to have multiple replications we average three or four of them together that becomes a number that we can talk about and then repeat so we don't want to do a trial one time and then just know that's what it was many times we're gonna repeat that trial such that we have some assurance that what we saw the first time is something that's repeatable
2: part of the fun for me to get to go on self-procured field trips like I have here today uh, down in Griffin are getting to see hidden gems never been to the Griffin area we ate at the mule barn which is a fantastic restaurant what's your favorite thing to order from Marcy
3: Oh, I like the chicken salad sandwiches. That's what I had today, too. I liked it. It was very good. Good recommendation. Yeah. All
2: right, now one other, and maybe some locals don't even know about this, Clint. You showed me the University of Georgia Research Garden, which is just maybe three blocks away from where we are here on the main campus. Well, they've
3: got several little small gardens over there, niche gardens, a Japanese garden, a water garden, a stone garden. I think there was a culinary garden over there, too.
2: Yeah, and if nothing else, an escape to get away To take the kids out to a garden, learn a little something But also, like you said, to your point To really see what works well Identify some plants that maybe you didn't know what they were But you like the look You have a similar area in your landscape that you can make that work And I gotta ask, have I overstayed my welcome or am I welcome
3: back? You can come back anytime It's great to have you
2: And of course, you can always get in touch with Clint through me Uh, Visit the Green and Growing WSB Facebook page Thank you so much Clint Walls, down here at the University of Georgia
3: Thank you, Ashley Thanks for coming
0: caterpillar to a butterfly it's green and growing with ashley frasca plants flowers trees and stuff brought to you by pike nurseries on 95.5 wsb
2: hey green and growing wrapping up another fun show and we'll get back to your calls in a minute 404-872-0750 but first We don't want to let you get away without hearing some great advice, tips, and products from Pike Nursery. So I have with me on the line, Kara Mulvey. You've heard her on the show before. She's the manager of the Holcomb Bridge Store. Good morning, Kara. Good
0: morning, Ashley. How are you?
2: Great. And I love the topic that we've come up with together um, because a lot of folks maybe have let some summer annuals die out or they're just still looking at bare pots, Kara, that they just haven't put anything in. And it's not too late. We're still not at that season transition to where, oh, I might as well just wait till fall. Like, no, there's still plenty of stuff out there. Heat loving plants.
0: I'd really try to focus on some things that have some colorful foliage because it would even get you through to that transition time as well. A few of my favorites, some really good colorful foliage is Caladiums and Coleus. Um, Most of the varieties do need a fair amount of shade, but there are some varieties out there that can take some sun. Um, The Caladiums, they almost look like miniature elephant ears, um, but they're very colorful. A lot of reds with some light greens, some dark greens. There's even white varieties that give you that really, really good pop of color in the shade. Then you also have your Coleus, um, and it has deep purples, bright reds, bright pinks There's a beautiful variety called watermelon And it's got this very, very hot pink with this deep green And it's just absolutely stunning It's a great way to brighten up your landscape in this heat
2: Coleus is so fun And it's so many different leaf textures and colors and things that it comes in, Cara But honestly, how big it gets so quickly surprises a lot of folks that put it in pots
0: Yeah, they do. And they'll get these little flower heads on them. And I suggest that you clip them back because it'll take too much energy from the plant itself. And the main attraction of coleus is going to be that foliage. It's not going to be the blooms. The blooms aren't very showy. They're not that pretty, to be honest. Um, So really try to pinch those off and you'll get a better look on that coleus.
2: So you're totally right with that, with the coleus and with the caladiums. Maybe a little more shade, um, and also some other plants that you know could could withstand full sun, but would prefer a little bit of a break as well. What else do you have?
0: Hookra. Hookra is great. Um, it's a, actually a year. Um, it's an evergreen perennial, so it stays green in the winter months as well. It's always good to add in some perennials, especially evergreen perennials, into your containers. Um, They do prefer to be in a container rather than the ground. Um, They can get powdery mildew pretty bad in the ground. Um, But these have gorgeous colors like deep purple, bright green, oranges, um, reds, you know, all those nice, vibrant colors for that shade area. It really, really adds a pop of color to your garden.
2: Yep. Hugra coral bells. And what about salvia? We really recommend those a lot to attract hummingbirds as well.
0: Yes. And um, these are for the sun. Um, There's numerous types of salvia out there. Some of my favorites are going to be your black and blue. Um, We have one called Sally Fun. That's white. (laughs) They're very pretty. There are annual varieties of salvia as well as perennial varieties. So be careful when you pick those up. Um, Some of them are in that transitional zone eight So it can work here as long as we keep having mild winters, but definitely one of my favorites is gonna be the black and blue. It has this deep, deep blue color. Another great one that I would add with your salvia would be pentas. This is absolutely one of my favorites. Um, There are these cluster flowers, red, white, hot pink, light pink, and they do last a very long time. And when one cluster kind of goes away, you already have 10 other clusters coming up. They are a great container plant. They do love the heat. They're fairly drought resistant and they're deer resistant, which is great in this area. If you also want something that kind of trails out, um, one of my favorites is purslane and portulaca. Yes. They're great, drought tolerant. They're absolutely stunning. They come in white, yellow. There's all these new different varieties that are like hot pink and hot orange. So they'll really brighten up the landscape Just remember that they close up their Flowers at night, and then they'll open Them during the day.
2: I love that Yeah, the lane also called Moss Rose For folks that kind of want to l- Know a little bit more about that, because it is a Succulent, so it has a different look, you can Go on the Green and Growing WSB Facebook Page and look under videos, because Exactly what you said, Carol, last year I had a video Kind of a time lapse video Of it opening in the morning So I got out there with my coffee early enough before It was open, and then just slowly watched the flowers Open took about two or three minutes But that was so fun to see
0: Yes, yeah, and they're awesome And they're great for hanging containers as well If your Boston fern looks tired And you just need something to plop up there uh, They make a great hanging basket
2: Perfect, okay, so where can we find inspiration Things you guys have in stock And pictures of some of these great plants That we talked about
0: Pikenursery.com or follow us on Instagram
2: Kara Mulvey from the Holcomb Bridge location. We hope to see you soon. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: Yes, thank you.
2: To Forsyth County again, we go, and this time say good morning to Robin. Hey there.
0: Hey, how
4: are you?
2: I am doing just fine. How
4: about you? Got a soil question. Okay. The theory of more is better uh-huh. kind of deal. Well, last year we had an area where we planted tomato plants, uh-huh. and manure was mixed in it, and ten 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 was mixed in it. I mean, it was just a you know, get the soil prep. The vines were beautiful. Tomato vines were plants were beautiful, but they really didn't produce. So this year, I decided to go in a different spot and had did fine with it. But I want to go back to the original place. How long does it take all that to break down in order for me to go back and actually have vines that produce better
2: tomatoes? That's a great question Using manure and using compost and things like that We do want to give it some time And even, you know, when you get mulch from maybe a tree company that's That's got a wood chipper or something like that All of those really do require some time to break down um, I would say do it at least a season before So when you're really thinking about putting in that tomato garden Doing something maybe even like late winter, midwinter um, That's going to give it two, three, four months for things to kind of break down and always mixing stuff in as well, right? Not just throwing the manure over the top of the soil or throwing the compost, but really mixing it in and let everything just be happy and mixed together and kind of break down.
4: This
1: is a Traffic Red Alert. From 95.5 WSB. 8.43, the Corey Carrier, WSB 24-hour traffic center. A red alert now in effect in Union City. Live look at the jam cam. All lanes are shut down with a crash on I-85 southbound at Flat Shoals Road. exit 66. Brake lights begin just south of I-285. Use Highway 29, Roosevelt Highway, as an alternate, once again, a red alert in effect. All lanes are shut down. I 85 southbound, Flat Shoals Road, exit 66. Use Highway 29 as an alternate through Union City. I'm Mike Schultz, 95.5 WSB.
2: Same soil needs and stuff, but with manure too, Robin, knowing the source because that animal may have been, you know, eating off of a pasture that. Chemicals have been used Or weed herbicides And things like that And that lives In the manure So to your point It's so important To allow it to break down Because if there's An herbicide in that Then it's kind of Tricky But at least you had plants So that that wasn't the problem It grew Yeah, exactly And maybe just a little More fertilizer Would be necessary Because if they never Put on flowers Then that You know, was a little bit Of a problem for sure
4: Right We bought it A bag of it Yeah And, you know I'm just I'm not a real manure fan Mm -hmm. You know, I just Make sure I could go back next year and plant my tomato plants in the, in the spot.
2: By next year, you'll be you'll be good to go. Good.
4: All right. Yes. Well, I appreciate you. I'm a first time caller, but I listen all the
2: time. I'm so, so glad. I, I, I get I, a lot just, of first time callers, and I think I know it's maybe nerve wracking or a little scary. But yeah. see how easy it was. <laughs> oh, it's fun. I, yes. and you do,
4: y'all. You really do have some great tips. And when Walter was on there, I'd love to hear him too because he had some great tips. But I'm so proud that y'all have this for our community because, you know, like I said, I'm not a farmer farmer. I just have a few plants. I just want to have some fresh vegetables every once in a while. Yes, and
2: we're all trying to help each other out. You know, we all want to be successful. And the more people that this show can attract to gardening, I mean, that's really my goal. You know, because like you, you don't have to be a farmer or even have a green thumb to really... Take pride in trying a few things here and there But once you've hit that yeah. spot where you've got Success with one thing, you are so Motivated to keep going and oh, try yeah. more And I'll
4: tell you, I love to be able to walk Out and see, oh my gosh, I have a red Tomato, oh my gosh, I've got a pepper You know, <laughs> so it, it's exciting to me Because I'm a country girl I I feel like I'm getting back to my Ancestor's roots
2: Well Robin, I'm so <laughs> glad you called and please do call back And anytime you got I a sure question is. I'm going to try my best to answer it
4: well, thank you again And oh, thank you all for the show And I just hope you. everybody will Just call in and learn something I mean, You always learn it Thank you Never too you. old to learn
2: And I'll tell you who else Has learned a little something A few of my coworkers Who engaged with me In a tomato growing contest You're going to hear The status update of that next It's Green and Growing On WSB one final check of your weather brought to you by Finley Roofing. So back in May, had tomato seeds, started the plants, gave them to these four suckers, no pun intended, <laughs> for a contest. With me, I have Judd Hickenbotham, who's grimacing.
1: Yes, All right, I'm we'll, grimacing. I'll, I'll get to that in we, a minute.
2: <laughs> Chris Camp, news director for WSB.
1: Yeah, so with these tomato, are they supposed to be big tomatoes or are they supposed <laughs> to be...
2: We'll cover that too. All right. <laughs> and then Mark Aram tomatoes yeah Green <laughs> tomatoes? and tad uh tad will join us here shortly we're following back up on this contest so i wanted a high yield of tomatoes, tomatoes. at this point mark Aram we'll start with you is your plant even still alive let's go
1: back to 12 months ago during the the height of the pandemic and i had a huge yield frasca gave me a tomato plant and little cherry tomatoes bushels Really? Fast forward to this year, and uh, I actually have photographic evidence of the deer that ate our tomato plant this year. You live near deer? Yeah, I'm right behind uh, Peachtree Creek. Wow. And I saw the deer. I was on my patio. I was like, oh, look at deer. And then I went inside, and then I came back out, and the plant was gone. So I have zero yield this year, Frasca.
2: Dang it. Uh, Chris Camp, you're up next. Now that was a legit question, though, because yeah, there are so many different yeah, varieties. Yeah. So I wasn't sure if the plant that I gave mm-hmm. you was sun sugar tomatoes, which are maybe about the size of a golf ball, maybe a little bigger, or cherry tomatoes.
1: My plant looks like looks like lima beans. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm just kidding. All right, so hey, Mark Aaron you live near the river, so yes. which river? Peachtree Creek. All right, because I live near the Chattahoochee, and I and I've got deer too. But look. <gasps> Wow. Wow, folks. Pictures, babe.
2: That is five cherry yeah. tomatoes yeah. on there a were paper actually,
1: towel. There were actually six. My wife ate one before I could get that wow. picture. And, and now so, those and now, you can open a salad uh, bar. I don't yeah. mean to, to disenfranchise the audience here, but <laughs> here's the... Um,
2: oh, goodness. wow. I got to share that picture on the Green and Growing that Facebook beautiful. page. You know? Yeah. Beautiful. So anyway. I'm Chris impressed. Camp is in the lead. Yeah. Enough for a salad bar. <laughs> My
4: goodness.
2: Okay, uh, and then Judd, I can just tell by your body language, something went wrong.
1: Well, nothing's gone wrong, necessarily. It's a nice green stalk, and it's so tall, it's fallen over. But, but it's a hell of a stalk. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's, if it were celery, it'd be fantastic. There's been nothing red to pop up anywhere.
2: Did it have any yellow flowers? It had no any yellow point.
1: flowers either. Now, I've been out of town a little bit this summer, and so maybe that could be the case.
2: No fertilization.
1: No fertilization. And the worst part is, three houses down from us, these people's garden is amazing. They have tomatoes all over the place. And my own children came up and said... Why don't our tomatoes look like theirs?
2: Ah, I appreciate your honesty, but what you should have done was taken a picture of said tomato plants across the street, brought in the tomatoes, (laughs) and taken credit for them. (laughs) That would have been a much better look.
1: No, I'm ready to to give the crown to to Chris Camp. I would not. not. Well,
2: Well, we will not.
1: uh Oh, Oh, boy. Look who's here. Oh, no.
2: Tad, just in fresh off of maybe tracking or pre-recording something for b98 on a saturday morning how are your tomatoes do they even exist
1: did i just hear judd drop out of the competition no no there's still a chance okay aram did A deer ate all his (laughs) a deer ate your question and i'm not bowing out all my tomato plants that i have in my garden are flourishing okay beautiful multiple rows it's out of control but I don't know which of them is yours.
2: <laughs> See, that's the so, thing. I don't even know what I gave you.
1: I We do have one tomato plant, which is producing the tiniest little tomatoes. They almost look like they're blueberries. Oh, really? And they're, small? they're tiny little things, but they're full-on red. They could be those. We also have other tomatoes that are Ooh. doing great. I've never seen tomatoes this small. I I can confirm from Tad's wife that they are really small.
2: (laughs) Uh, Here we go again. So, no, Chris is concerned. Do you live near a body of water? Why? I don't
1: know. Mark
2: Um, Mark lives near Peachtree Creek. The deer ate his. Chris lives near Chattahoochee River.
1: Right. It's doing great. Mine is growing in a community garden, which is near the Briarwood Park Pool.
2: So, <laughs> <laughs> it is a, <laughs> right, right, right. That could be the cause for the stunted growth. Uh, the worst experiment you ever yeah. came up with. This could be the last and final <laughs> update uh, on 2021 season. And debate not contest. necessarily growing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, at least congratulations for all of you. I really appreciate you being the guinea pigs for four months for this contest. Uh, appreciate the updates, too. Want to try a different vegetable next year?
1: Can we do pumpkins in the fall or something? It's, it's
2: almost getting too late to do oh, really? seeds. To sow them directly in the I heard ground.
1: almost. We can make this There's out. a chance. Okay.
2: All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so somehow. it's time to wrap it up. Man, what a good time. Thanks, guys. It's been a great show. Thanks for listening to Green and Growing. I'll be back next Saturday.
1: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently